Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 will be in verses 9 through 12 this afternoon. As I mentioned this morning, we're getting more regular here with having an outline handout for each sermon. So there is one on the table in the back if you don't already have one. I'm titling the sermon from this text, Brotherly Love and Quiet Lives. Brotherly Love and Quiet Lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Let me remind you of uh, the flow here in Paul's epistle, his letter to the church at Thessalonica, which he had had to leave long before he meant to. Persecution had driven him out after he had he and his associates had planted that church. And um, Paul had, had ended one section of the letter with a, an, a prayer, which is also a benediction, um, in verses 11 through 12, uh, through 13 of chapter 3. Uh, and he had said, I want you to listen again as we kind of get our brains, our minds back into First Thessalonians from the last time. I want you to listen to some themes that will come up again in our text for today. First Thessalonians 3.11 Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. You recall Paul was prevented by Satan uh, from coming back to them when he wanted to visit them again. Though Timothy then successfully had a a good visit. Uh, So now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So for one another as Christians and then for all people. As we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Holiness or sanctification before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Then the very next verses, of course, we've had the chapters added in later, but next verses, chapter four, verses one through four, he says, finally, then, brothers, uh, not indicating he's about finished, but indicating a change of of um, focus. Here's another section he's saying. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, same word for sanctification or holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body, his own vessel, in holiness and honor. So, as we come next here to verses 9 through 12, in chapter 4, we find another matter brought up. After the section on sexual morality, we have another matter of self-control in holiness and honor, driven by love for one another and for all. I'll I'll repeat that. Uh, Paul is going to introduce another matter of self-control in holiness and honor, driven by love for one another and for all. All those things are coming out again, as they have been in the last few paragraphs. 
So let's read verses 9 through 12. That, this is our sermon text. Verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think the big idea here, before we get into the the details on it, the big idea is that love for Christian brethren must always increase in the context of peaceful productivity. So each part of that's important. Love for Christian brethren must always increase. You never reach the point where you don't need more, more of it. It's, it, must, it must always increase in the context of peaceful productivity. Peaceful productivity. There's a lot there, so we'll start block by block, as it were. Uh, verses 9 through beginning of 10 Paul says that all Christians are taught by God to love one another. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So in one sense, he's saying, uh, in one sense, I almost don't need to mention this because you already know this, not only intellectually, but experientially. You know what it is to love the brethren. Uh, You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Notice, not just in their own town of Thessalonica, in their entire province of Macedonia. Somehow, Paul doesn't go into it here, but they knew and he knew that somehow in various ways their love for Christian brethren had reached throughout their province, throughout northern Greece. Brotherly love. It'll sound very, very familiar. This is one of those times if I say the Greek, um, you'll think I'm talking about a city in Pennsylvania. It's Philadelphia. Brotherly love, Philadelphia. Um, It's important to understand. uh, This word was around before Paul used it. And except in Christian writings, as Robert Carr points out, when this term is used in ancient literature, it almost always refers to to natural affection between biological brothers and sisters. This normally, before the Christians started using the term, normally only referred to your actual family members, how you would have natural affection for them, or you should at least. (laughs) That's brotherly affection. Family affection, love, loyalty even to each other, right? And it wasn't just that they used words in the early church like brotherly love to, to talk about this, but they, they had actions which would have come across maybe strangely to their neighbors, like what they called, Peter called, the kiss of love in the church. They would greet each other as warmly as they would greet family members. Um, and of course, they, they would have share meals together in each other's homes. That was usually the context of the Lord's table. There are all sorts of ways in which they were emphasizing we are the family of God and that means just as much, even more, than our our blood ties. So brotherly love. 
Um, so the Apostolic Church reinforced in practice the doctrine that Christian believers are together children of God within his household. We are, we are that in two ways we could look at it. We are children of God together by the new birth, right? We're all born again and also by adoption. Those are two different things in the New Testament, though they're said of the same people. The new birth and adoption. The new birth means that God, by his spirit, has given us a new nature, created to reflect his own character. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, right? So Paul said. That's the new birth. We have God's seed within us, as the Apostle John put it. He has begotten us by the word of truth, as James said. That's the new birth. Now, adoption means that God has given us the full status of heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Adoption in that day wasn't only about bringing someone into the family. It was about inheritance rights. Uh, some, in some contexts, you think of Galatians even. Paul even talks about adoption as not really being fully implemented until someone, until a child reached maturity maybe. When they really came into their inheritance, right? So, so in two separate ways. We, we have been born again. By God's spirit, God is our father in that way. And he has claimed us as his own heirs, his sons in that way. Adoption. So, uh, adoption means that God has given us the full status of heirs. So together, we all share the same spiritual DNA, the new birth, and the same privileges, adoption. Same spiritual DNA, same spiritual privileges. So from two different angles there, we are together children of God with all the privileges of that. So it's only natural, you might say, I mean, in a spiritual, you could say supernatural way, but it's only natural for us if we have this new nature, if we have the new birth, and if we're adopted by God, to be affectionate towards each other, to have a, a loyal love for each other, as brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that's brotherly affection. And it seems like Paul coined his own term here where he says, you yourselves have been taught by God. That's Taught by God is just one word in the Greek. You've been taught by God to love one another. Uh, seems like this word only shows up after Paul uses it here, uh, anywhere in Greek writings. Um, but... Uh, it seems like we know where he probably got it. It seems, as you compare that, that Greek wording that he used to make up a word, um, seems like he's looking particularly at Isaiah 54 and verse 13, where it said of the redeemed of the Lord, uh, of redeemed Zion, all your children shall, and this is following the Hebrew in our Bibles, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Um, if we look at it in the Septuagint, it would say, uh, the, old, the Greek Old Testament, it would say, and all your sons will be instructed or taught by God. Wording that Paul kind of takes out and then switches together to make his own word, taught by God. All your sons will be taught by God and your children will live in great peace. And then Jesus quotes that text, Isaiah fifty four thirteen, in a very famous text, John 6. 
verses 44 through 45, where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So it seems here, Jesus has already applied Isaiah, and Paul is likewise applying Isaiah, and he probably, perhaps he'd heard, uh, John probably wasn't written yet, but uh, he could have also known of this saying of Jesus. Um, Isaiah said, what will be special about God's people under the new covenant? They'll all be personally taught by God. Effectively taught by God. So they actually learn what they're supposed to learn. How to walk in his ways. They'll have his law in their hearts, as it says elsewhere. They'll have his Holy Spirit within them. And so Paul here is talking about something that is without which, an instruction without which, people can't even be believers in the first place. Uh, it's Jesus quotes in the, in the context of those who are taught by God, who, who, who have heard and learned from the Father and thus come to Jesus. They've been drawn to him effectually. Uh, what, one other thing as we're just looking at the words here, verses 9 and 10. Um, sometimes, have you ever, let me ask this question. Have you ever heard people go back to the Greek, they think, and make a big distinction between two words for love, phileo and agape? This is phileo love, but this is agape love. Well, just a caution. This is a good example of that caution. Paul uses those two words um, interchangeably here. It's talking about the same thing. Uh, just like in our language, in any language, you might use two words to talk about the same thing. Sometimes agape love uh, or to agapao someone. <laughs> that doesn't quite work, but it's Greek to English. Uh, sometimes agape love might have a little different connotation depending on context, but it might be the same as phileo love. So just a caution there about people getting it from the Greek, uh, so to speak. Uh, here, where he says, you've been taught by God to love one another. There he uses the word uh, for agape or agapao. Um, you've been taught by God to love one another, and that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Gary Shogren had a great comment here of something we might just skip over as we read this. God has not simply taught them that they ought to love one another or filled them in on a theology of love. God has taught them with the result that they practice love. Paul is speaking to believers as believers that I know you're believers, I know you're genuine Christians, so I know you know how to love one another. If you didn't, you wouldn't be Christians. That's what he's saying. It's not just that God told them what that's about and then said, now oh, you better. No, God had taught them, um, like if, if you men have taught your sons to hunt. It's not that you just drew it out on a chalkboard somewhere and said, now look, this is how you do it. Um, if you want to go out and do it sometime yourself, that's up to No, you taught them how to hunt. You're probably saying you took them out in the woods and you did it with them, right? They learned by doing. God has taught us to love one another, for that indeed is what these Thessalonian believers were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
1 John 3, verses 10 through 11. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And down in verse 23 of that text. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Or 1 John 4, 7-12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love... Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And before we leave this section, uh, again, Paul doesn't tell us how the Thessalonians were showing this love to all the brothers in their province of Macedonia. Um, Some ideas might be intercessory prayer for for others all over the place. Maybe financial support for those who didn't have as much as them. Maybe hospitality, as Thessalonica was an important city that many would have traveled to and from. And they may have needed a place to stay. But we don't exactly know uh, in this case. However... As Paul says, all Christians are taught by God to love one another. That moves us to the end of verse 10, where he says that this love for the family of God can and must always increase. He's, he's, not, he's not saying this because they have a deficit, but he's saying it because he knows it always needs to get bigger. He's not saying they're not loving each other. Um, he's just saying this is, this is going to be your whole Christian life working on doing this better and more all the time. This love for the family of God can and must always increase. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. More and more. And this reminds us of some basic truths um, that we should never be self-satisfied in some area of the Christian life, whether it's Christian love or anything else. We shouldn't be satisfied, self-satisfied, that we've attained... And we can just kind of maintain there and just focus on other things. (laughs) Um, Never in this life will we reach perfection in our Christian virtues and affections. That's not to discourage us. It's just to say, notify us. We can't coast in something once we've attained it, we think, spiritually. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith Add to it, uh, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with, here's our word again, Philadelphia, with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love, agape. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, Peter says, if they're yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know, and you know, that we all like to coast. 
we, we like to feel like we've hit an easy streak. <laughs> but we should always, it's, uh, it's not that we have to be all uptight about it and not joyful, but we always have to see how can I do this better when we're talking about Christian virtues, particularly brotherly love. <laughs> Uh, Never in this life should we cease pursuing more good works fueled by faith and love. In Titus 3, Paul says to to Titus on the island of Crete, he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If we say we have to keep increasing more and more in brotherly affection, How is that going to look practically? A lot of it's going to be good works for each other, right? Um, And that'll even stoke your affection the more you uh, are involved with others. Um, And and then uh, in that same text in Titus 3, uh, later on, he he repeats it. He says in verse 14, let me back up. Uh, verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you in Crete, here in the book of Titus, uh, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we should always be focused on what good works does God have for me and for us now? What now? Whatever God has done in the past in our lives is great, but what now? How can we increase? And never in this life will we no longer have a debt of love to other people. The one debt which we should never want to pay off is the debt of love. That's what Paul says in Romans 13, verses 8 and 9. Owe no one anything except... To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, oh, no one anything, oh, except, Paul says, to love each other. That debt you never want to pay off. You can always, but you should always want to work on it. We come to the third point of the text, verse 11. Um, So we've been talking about how all Christians are taught by God to love one another. And then this love for the family of God can and must always increase. And now Paul is getting to a point he's been driving at, but it hasn't been clear until now what his point is. um, That applies specifically here in Thessalonica. Number three, this love must guard peace, privacy, and personal productivity. I felt very much like a Baptist preacher with all the alliteration, all the P's. <laughs> the peace, privacy, and personal productivity. I thought maybe we'd remember it better if we had that. Um, and we'll, of course, we're about to unfold this. But he says, verse 11, and he's not done. You, you, um, are, always in, you are to always be increasing more and more. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire. That's that's a a high word of like high aspirations. This is a a lofty goal of mine to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. 
and to work with your hands as we instructed you. As as uh, some have rightly said, uh, aspire to live a normal Christian life, right? Aspire to that. This is not a new instruction, but a reminder, he says, as we instructed you. I already told you this, but I have to tell it to you again. Let's break this down. Peace, privacy, and personal productivity. And what does that have to do with brotherly affection and love? Well, first of all, quiet peace in private life. Aspire to live quietly. This is really the opposite of turmoil and disturbance and being stirred up. Maybe being a pot stirrer, you could say. Uh, The opposite of turmoil and disturbance. Aspire to live quietly. Quiet peace in private life. G.K. Beals mentions, when love takes a high profile among God's people, they assume a low, humble profile before one another and others. Uh, this, this wording here, uh, aspire to live quietly, reminds me of 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And he's speaking to the church as a whole here, especially. Uh, this is what you should be praying for. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peaceful and quiet. So, while I think we're especially familiar from 1 Peter 3, as I'll read in a moment, we're familiar with the wording of meek and quiet spirit that has a special application to, to wives, right? While there is a special application for wives, a meek and quiet spirit is not just for wives. Because that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Leading a quiet life. Uh, but but as Peter applies this concept to wives, 1 Peter 3, here is how he talks about it. 1 Peter 3, 1-4. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that, even if, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, or a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Quiet peace in private life. And this will become clearer as we move to the next thing. To mind your own affairs. To mind your own affairs. Uh, Diligent focus on one's own affairs not a neighbor's private affairs. We, sinners that we are, we can mess anything up. We could mess up brotherly love and think that means I need to be in everyone else's business all the time. No. Privacy is a thing for Christians. Um, There are things which we must be uh, open with each other about in appropriate ways in church life. Um, and open up to each other like we wouldn't to others, and yet there's still privacy. Quiet peace in private life and minding your own affairs. <laughs> so it takes wisdom, obviously, to work this out practically in the Christian life, but it's a real thing. Robert Carr says, maybe they were bothering others who were working, 
or perhaps they were becoming overly involved in church decisions concerning who would get financial aid, or it may be a polite way of telling them that they should work. Um, Have you ever noticed a word that shows up a few interesting places where God says not to be a meddler? A meddler. M-E-D-D-L-E-R. Not to meddle. (laughs) 1 Peter 4, verses 14 through 16. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. (laughs) Wow, really bad stuff. And then he throws in, or as a meddler. Fights that aren't yours to have. Just being a troublemaker in some way. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Which reminds me of Proverbs 26, 17, which is a, intentionally, it's a funny picture it paints. And remember, dogs, mostly in that day, were wild scavengers that you didn't want to mess with. Uh, Proverbs twenty six seventeen says, Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. You're not going to get out of that well. <laughs> Some dog was passing by, minding its own business, and you grabbed it by the ears. Well, guess what's going to happen? Yeah. 1 Timothy 5, 11-16. Uh, and this context is... Paul instructing the church in Ephesus and Timothy um, about which widows should receive church assistance and which should um, take a different path in life. Verse 11 of that text, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Uh, meaning, it's not wrong to marry at all. He's going to say marry, but uh, meaning they would have made a certain commitment that then they would break when their their wills weakened. Uh, verse thirteen. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, not having enough to do, going about from house to house, and not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows, meaning the widows who had nobody to support them. But in this particular context, um, Paul is saying younger widows should try to find a husband. So that they can have enough to do in life because Satan otherwise is going to tempt them to use all their extra time to meddle. Um, and they'll probably initially think they're doing it for good reasons. But the truth is, if they had enough of their own to do, they wouldn't have time to get in all these traps, he says. And that can be true for all of us. If we don't have enough positive things that we are pursuing in our practical day-to-day lives. Also, Philip Graham Ryken in his First Timothy commentary, uh, he said something 
very important you're connecting this to Genesis and to the big picture of the Bible. He says, human beings were created to work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Exodus 29, verse 9. This does not mean that every Christian has to work at a paying job, but every Christian must work. By the way, the older widows in that last text, Paul said they have work to do. It's it's prayer (laughs) and other good works they can do as they're able in their older age. But, as he says, every Christian must work. People who depend on one form of public assistance or another need to find something productive to do with their time, either at home or in the community. End of quote. Uh, But we're not done. Uh, Paul also says next, to work with your hands. To work with your hands. So hard work to provide for one's own needs. Hard work to provide for one's own needs. John Calvin said, by the way, when Paul speaks about hands, he is using the part for the whole. It is quite certain that he includes every useful occupation of human life. So, um, the, the point being, you're working hard. It still counts if you're using your feet uh, on the pedals of a piece of machinery and not your hands, okay? Uh, the point is not just the literal hands. The point is, you are, so to speak, putting your hands to something yourself, not having everyone else do your work for you. So Christian love, remember the context is still Christian love. Christian love avoids being an unnecessary burden on others, for one thing, especially on the brethren. The Christian should do everything possible to be self-reliant and then have enough to share. But what we should not do, we should not make it our aim to be mainly on the receiving end of that sharing. I love, I love Christian affection. It's really benefiting me. <laughs> um, I love how this, this church loves the brethren. I'm getting all their money. Most people probably would not put it that way, but, you know, sometimes lifestyles veer that way. Now, Paul, this is not the last time Paul has to say something about this. In, in fact, the next letter, and we'll get there, of course, the next letter, Paul has to get even harder on some in the church at Thessalonica about this issue. Second Thessalonians three eleven through 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Um, and we'll discuss it there. It could also be in unruliness. But some among you walk in idleness or unruliness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. And even in the original language, he's making a play on words. You're not busy at work. You're just busy bodies. You're finding things to do that are none of your concern. And that don't benefit anybody. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. There's that word again. To do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As Jeff Wyman, his commentary says, this suggests that the idleness of some at Thessalonica allowed them the time and opportunity to be involved in the kind of meddling and busybody activity that offends others. And then he he gives a quote from a Jewish writer of the time in the Greek-speaking world, Philo, who um, he, he he's talking about quietness, the quiet life, as they would have thought of it then, and he contrasts it with something else. He contrasts the quiet life with the vulgar man who spends his days meddling, 
running around in public, in theaters, tribunals, councils, and assemblies, meetings and consultations of all sorts. He prattles on without moderation, fruitless, to no end. He confuses and stirs up everything, mingling truth with falsehood, the spoken with the unspoken, the private with the public, the sacred with the profane, the serious with the ridiculous, not having learning to remain quiet, which is the same word Paul uses in our text, which is the ideal when the situation calls for it. And he pricks up his ears in an excess of bustling busyness. That's not inspired scripture. It's just saying uh, what was the opposite uh, in that language of quiet life. Now, now let me give a very specific application um, as we think about social media. Um, most of us have experienced wholesome benefit from some social media uh, content and some blog posts, some podcasts. But let's also acknowledge the other side of the coin in our day. Uh, too many social media influencers, and I'm not talking about anyone specific, I'm just giving you a principle, okay? Um, too many social media influencers and bloggers and podcasters, even in the Christian world, Sometimes they're little more than meddlers and busybodies. And we have to be careful as we, we want to know a whole bunch of things. We want to take in content. Um, be discerning. <laughs> uh, who that source is for you. And what the big picture of their life is away from the screen or the keyboard. All right. Many times they're little more than meddlers and busybodies who cannot stand a quiet life. They'd rather be in the thick of controversies and trivial pursuits and internet fame and keyboard warfare. They'd rather do all that than simply focus on their own affairs. Some even get their main income from being an internet busybody uh, when they would do far better to seek a more beneficial line of work. One application among many, but I think it, it's something that, you know, we, we don't automatically translate because we think of social media and podcasts and stuff as a separate category sometimes, and we don't apply things biblically. And again, he says, as we instructed you, uh, we already told you this. First Thessalonians 2.9, he had said, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil when they had first planted the church. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And then later in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, verse 12, as we try to wrap this up, this lifestyle that Paul's been encouraging, this lifestyle promotes proper relations Outside and inside God's family. You should be concerned about how your lifestyle is affecting people near and farther off who are observing and who are interacting with you. Proper relations outside and inside God's family. 
verse 12, so that you may walk properly, walk properly before outsiders, those outside the church, outside God's people, and be dependent on no one. So we have to have prudent interaction with the watching world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But we have to ask ourselves the question, as Paul's teaching us now, how many onlookers will glorify God if they see a bunch of lazy, cantankerous busybodies in the church? That's not light, that's darkness. Who's going to glorify God then when they look at us? How many unbelievers will be willing to listen to our gospel? And yes, there's already enough obstacles in their own hearts, but how many unbelievers will be willing to listen to our gospel if we ourselves are parasites, gossips, and rabble-rousers? That's what Paul's saying here. He's warning them. This isn't going to end well. But we also need to keep in mind proactive provision rather than passive dependency. Be dependent on no one, he says. Actually, what he says is, um, let me get back there here in my, my Bible. Um, aspire to do all this. He's been saying aspire to live quietly. Aspire to mind your own affairs. Aspire to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He's not saying that it's never right in any case to be dependent on someone. But he's saying your goal should be, if it's possible, to be dependent on no one. G.K. Beale, as Christians work with their own hands, they do not become selfishly dependent on others to help them and do not impose on their generosity. Rather, they demonstrate love by contributing to the needs of truly needy saints so that the needs of all are met. And he references Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Well, let me conclude this way. Just to hammer home the point. Let's talk about the exception to the rule. Even if you have to be dependent on someone, even the dependent should be known for love and good works, the scripture says. Love and good works, a wholesome, quiet, private life, tending to your own affairs, and then blessing others with your life, right? Two texts, 1 Timothy 5, 9-10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So those are the examples of good works. Bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, um, which would be part of hospitality, and, and but humbly serving the other saints. Caring for the afflicted. You get someone's sickbed. Um, and devoting yourself to every good work. You know, it's, it's, it's often pride that makes people meddlers because they're not humble enough 
to do the lowly things that are truly good works. They want to feel important and involved in everyone else's business to be important. Uh, We should be content and humble enough to do the little things and realize those are precious in God's sight. Those are the good works he made us to do, not to be in the limelight all the time. Likewise, Acts 9, I won't read read it, the whole thing, um, but you remember the, the woman in, in Joppa, the Christian in Joppa named Tabitha, uh, or in Greek, Dorcas, the woman that Peter raised from the dead. Uh, she was full of good works and acts of charity, it says, and um, when she had died, all the widows stood beside Peter weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And then Peter raised her from the dead. But our point is, she was known, it says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And that was as practical as being sure someone had uh, a suitable, nice-fitting piece of clothing. And God honored that. He raised her from the dead. Don't be unimpressed with the things God calls precious. Remember, he says, even a cup of cold water given in Christ's name will not lose its reward. Don't think you have to impress God, let alone people, by something big you do or are involved in. In the proper sense, mind your own business. Do what's right in front of you. Do the next right thing in your little context. And that'll have rich reward. And that's the way to love each other well, too. Then you can truly bless others when you actually have a productive life yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the kind attention of your people. Please show us in each of our lives where we can improve, where we can stop coasting and go to further lengths of brotherly love and affection and good works. Help us not to be, as we naturally contend to be, lazy, uh, proud, even busybodies, troublemakers sometimes, because we aren't content with what you've truly given us to, to do in this life. Help us for Jesus' sake, because... You have prepared good works for us uh, that we should walk in them when you called us in Christ. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.